vipassana or insight is a clear seeing that realizes the inherent nature of experience. And more than a moment of observation or an object of mindfulness, it is an understanding that arises in the mind upon sufficient uh, moment-to-moment awareness. As we observe this mind and body, we begin to collect data, the pixels, if you will, of what life is made up from. And when we have collected enough data, we've just kind of collected enough momentary experiences, we begin to be more informed about the nature of this mind, the nature of the body, and how they relate to one another. And from this information, we begin to know how the body and mind are kind of unfolding over time, the patterns and the the habits, the effective habits and the patterns that make up our personality. And when we deeply understand how this is all unfolding, and we really deeply understand the underlying nature of the mind, the body, how they interact, then we can use that knowledge to enhance our life and to to do well in life. Now, when we observe this mind and body, what do we see? Well, you know, in a, in, a, in a general sense, we see my life. But really, when you, when you try to articulate what it is that you've actually experienced, what you felt in the body, what you felt in the mind, and really clearly understood, you see that the body and the experience of the body is made up of Momentary heat, vibration, pressure, hardness, pleasant, unpleasant, painful, you know, just kind of little pixels of stuff. And when we look at this mind, we see the activity of mind is thinking, planning, observing, commenting, narrating, judging, evaluating. We see that the mind has its capacity to feel, to perceive, to judge, evaluate. And we see that the nature of the mind is to know all of this. That's it. That's what we actually observe when we pay attention. Pixels of physical experience, pixels of mental experience. And each one of us somehow takes what we see, glues it all together in this unique arrangement, slap a skin on it, and call it me. (laughs) 
insight is an intuitive understanding that is deeper than all that, but is gathered from or comes out of deeply understanding this is the way it is in the body, in the mind. So tonight I want to speak about some of the common characteristics that emerge from this cataloging of experience. I'm going to begin tonight, and Joseph is going to finish tomorrow night, talking about the what are known as the three common characteristics, or the three insights. <clears throat> I want to talk about how we develop the understanding, or how the understanding kind of dawns on us or arises in the mind, and what the value of this understanding is to us. Upon collecting enough or cataloging enough of the pixels of experience, we begin to see that all experience, every experience we've ever had, is impermanent. Is impermanent. It arises due to conditions, and when those conditions cease, it comes to an end, and it's gone. We also see that because everything we've ever experienced is just a momentary appearance in the mind, it's not very stable. And therefore, everything in our life being unstable means that nothing can really provide us an absolute rock-solid foundation for security and stability in our life. Things are unsatisfactory. They're incapable of providing that. And third, we see that these things, these pixels of experience, all that we are, all that we do, all that we see, all that we become, arises due to conditions which are in themselves just conditions, giving rise to other conditions. And that all of this is just arising and passing away, not under our immediate control. So the first of these characteristics, impermanence, Joseph will speak about more tomorrow night, but tonight I want to speak about what's called the dukkha characteristic and the anatta characteristic. Now the dukkha characteristic has a preeminent place in the Buddhist teachings, and it is embedded in the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha. Dukkha means several things, and it's important to kind of get a, get a picture of the scope of what dukkha means. And the first meaning of dukkha is pain, the truth of pain. Everyone experiences pain, physical pain and mental pain. There's obvious physical pain. The pain of feeling hungry, the pain of feeling having eaten too much, the pain of toothache or any other disease that we might have. It's the pain of being tired, the pain of uh, exerting yourself too much, the pain of physical ailment, the pain of growing old, the 
eventual and inevitable pain of getting sick and passing away. Is there anyone that hasn't experienced that? It's universal. There's also obvious mental or emotional pain. The pain of anxiety, fear, loneliness, depression, despair, feeling discriminated against, isolated, feeling dismissed, minimized, victimized. There's just an infinite array of emotional and mental terrain that is experienced as painful. And again, every one of us has experienced a lot of it. And yet, somehow, we persist in wanting to believe that we can live life without it, without pain. That somehow we can kind of put together the conditions in our life you know, the right job and the right income, living in the right neighborhood with the right partner, having the right car, good diet, good exercise, good sex. Hey, no pain. <laughs> well, actually, we should consider pain normal. We should expect it. We should consider, uh, we should become familiar with it because it is so ever-present in our life or in others' lives. Nevertheless, we persist in living in denial, or at least trying to minimize, avoid, uh, deny, just kind of keep, a, keep, it, keep away from it as much as we can. Well, that's understandable. It's painful. We don't want to experience it. But this tendency to avoid, deny, and minimize creates a lot of strategizing in our life, a lot of unwise decisions. And then when pain inevitably catches up with us, we feel like we failed. We failed. This is a natural occurrence. It occurs to everyone. It happens all the time. We should expect, hey, when you have pain, you succeeded. You're normal. When we begin to pay close attention to our mind and body, we see pain. And to live in, to continue to try to live in denial or avoidance of it, we just become insensitive, we become hard, we become coarsened. Or if we've resigned ourselves to the inevitable, we can become you know, disempowered, we can feel victimized, we can feel ineffectual in handling my pain. Maybe we've seen enough pain in our life to expect it with dread and fear. This is no solution to uh, addressing it either. What mindfulness shows us is another way of understanding the experience of pain in our life. Because when we're fully able to acknowledge the place or pain's place in our life, when we can understand its arising, how it arises, why it arises, when we can accept the life cycle of the body includes sickness, old age, and death, 
when we can recognize that the mind is not always under our control. It sometimes has a mind of its own. Nevertheless, we're responsible for it. When we can open to all this and accept it, understand it, and allow this knowledge into our beliefs, then we can let it guide how we approach the present moment, how we think about the future, and what we expect, so that we're not trying to live a fantasy, but we're actually grounding our life in the reality of what we have seen. To believe otherwise, to believe that we can somehow construct a life free of pain is utter delusion. And to the extent that we're strategizing and scheming and making plans that don't include pain, we're creating a fantasy. So, what are we to do? By observing and coming to understand that pain is an inevitable fact of life. This is one of the facts of life beyond the teenage years. (laughs) It's a fact of life, pain. When we can open to it and understand it, accept it, not with resistance and fear and dread and you know, wishing it was otherwise, but just really understanding this is the way it is, then we can not fear its arising. We can not be surprised when it appears and not consider ourselves a failure. But rather, we don't need to push it away. We don't need to struggle with it. But we can face it. We can actually open to it and and understand that this is a natural experience. This is what the body does. This is what the mind does. This is how it is. And in that, we can establish a different relationship to pain in the body, pain in the mind. It is accepting the knowledge that pain arises in the body, arises in the mind accepting it that allows the mind to remain balanced, to not fall into the extremes of, you know, reactivity, but to stay in a place of balance where we can be open to and feel what's present and not compound the pain with resistance and fear and struggle with it. When we understand this, we can reflect wisely on past experiences. We can uh, correct our expectations that it should be otherwise. And we can adapt to the present moment when it's painful and when it's not. We also understand that others experience pain. It's not their fault. This is the way it is. When we understand that, it calls forth a natural compassion and caring for their pain, too. That's the first definition, really, 
of dukkha. But there's a second definition of dukkha, which is a little more mm, subtle. And that is that because everything changes, which we know intellectually and we know somewhat from our experience, because everything changes, whatever we have built our happiness upon, our sense of security upon, our place in life upon, is unstable. It's unstable. And anything that's unstable can change, can move, it can disappear in a moment. And when it does, our happiness, our security, our contentment, our sense of ourself goes with it. And for most of us, we know, we see, we've seen it in others, how quickly conditions in life can change. And what was once so obvious and so secure and so stable is gone, and life is in flux, life is in turmoil. All of us have done as best we can to patch together the conditions for some relative degree of stability and security in our life. But just on the periphery of our conscious awareness is this knowledge that it's all unstable. And because it's unstable, we live in perpetual insecurity. Fear that it might change. Not only that it might, it will. And we know that. And so, in some ways, we're just kind of, just kind of keeping an eye on it, just out, just kind of out the corner of our eye, that hoping that it doesn't change too radically, too quickly, too abruptly in the wrong direction. And that's the way we live. That insecurity, that vulnerability, is dukkha. Now, right in the moment, we might be living quite well. You know, we might be living with abundance, with relative good health, and, you know, stability in our relationships and jobs, and, and even on retreat. But conditions change. And when they do, dukkha dukkha appears. So, we could say that dukkha is hidden in pleasant conditions. Because when pleasant conditions change to unpleasant, then the obvious, the very noticeable pain of the body, pain of the mind appears. It is difficult not to take pain and insecurity personally and think, well, it's just, it's just me. I haven't got it together yet. I haven't quite got my act together. I haven't saved enough, and I haven't kind of put enough into my relationship, and I haven't kind of done enough practice. I've got to do some more retreats to really get my practice together, and then I'll be secure. It's not possible. It doesn't happen that way. Because no matter what we patch together, it's not your fault that it is incapable of providing the stability, the security, 
the insurance of a pain-free life. Not possible. But because we personalize it, we think, it's just my fault. It's my, it's my problem. But actually, the Buddha said, everybody's got the same problem. Men got their problems, women got theirs. Wealthy people, poor people, old people, young people, it, all experience and live with this condition of dukkha. By personalizing security and pain, it blinds us to the universal truth of dukkha. Again, when we're able to accept the truth of dukkha, we can see that this insecurity is a fact of life, just as pain is, and vulnerability is inevitable. Well, as if those two weren't enough, there's a third meaning to dukkha, (laughs) which also needs to be mentioned so that you can begin to recognize it in your life. And it's not so much a direct experience, but it's an understanding that comes from paying close attention to the way life unfolds. And it's called Sankara Dukkha, and there's two ways of understanding it. There's the macro view and the micro view. The macro view says, well, you're born, and your parents, doing the best they can, or other caregivers, doing the best they can, take care of you for several years. They feed you, they bathe you, they clothe you, they cool you, they educate you, they love you, they do other things to you. And whatever it is they do, they kind of get you through the day as best they can. And after 7, 8, 10, 15 years, they gradually kind of remove themselves from the picture and they say, you're on your own. Now you have to do it. You have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your body and you have to take care of your mind. And taking care of the body requires that you've got to feed it every day and you've got to go to the bathroom every day and you've got to clean it every day. You've got to groom it and you've got to shape it and you sculpt it and you do this and you've got to do that every day because your parents aren't going to do it for you anymore. And you know, you just can't give it up because, hey, don't eat for a couple of days. Then you've got some dukkha. <laughs> or don't, don't brush your teeth. Don't comb your hair. Don't bathe. There, give it up. You'll have some more dukkha. You know, and you've got to do it. Yeah. But the body's not bad, not so bad. You've got this mind. And you've got to take care of the mind. You've got to keep it entertained. You've got to keep it distracted. You've got to keep it busy. You've got to keep it looking and playing and, and doing all kinds of things. Or otherwise, it would be just like being on a retreat your whole life. <laughs> right? And you've got to do this for two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight decades. <laughs> Every day. At the end of which, what happens? It goes in a little box and goes in a hole in the ground. (laughs) And you have to do it. That's a burden you cannot escape. That's oppressive. If you can open to it, that is really oppressive. You can't hire somebody to do it. You can't force somebody to do it. You can share it with somebody else, but that's two you got to take care of. (laughs) That's the macro view. The micro view is we have six senses. Eyes, ear, nose, tongue, body. Eyes, ear, nose, tongue, body. And mind. And they are constantly being bombarded with stimulation 24-7. Right? 
you're hearing, you're feeling things in your body, you're, you're seeing things, you're hearing things, you're smelling things, taking things, and certainly you're thinking. Well, you, me too, all the time. And you can't shut it off. You can go to sleep, but you'll dream. You know, you, it, it's just constant stimulation. And it, it's just incessant. And, and it's, it's stressful to have to deal with it. We want to look, we want to shut it off. We'd love to shut it off. We take drugs, we drink, we sleep, we do all kinds of things to distract ourselves from paying attention to this incessant stimulation of the sense doors. It's oppressive. This is also a meaning of dukkha. This oppressive condition of life in the, in the aggregate, in the cumulative aggregate, is just burdensome. Part of our practice is to just open to this understanding. And so we encourage you to just pay attention, to just see. This is what it's like. We, I can tell you this, but it isn't very impactful. But when you keep paying attention and you see it over and over and over again, 24-7, all the time, then you begin to get it. It's true, this is, this is the way it is. And when you really open to it and accept the fact that this is the way it is, then you'll do something about it. Then you'll start to look for, how can I relate to this in a way that is freeing, that is a little less burdensome, that's a little less... How can I not ask this body and mind to provide me the stability and the whatever that we want? When we can realistically accept this is the way it is, we can engage life fully without expecting it to be otherwise. We struggle with the conditions of our life. Struggling is optional. And when we see that this is the way it is, we don't, we don't crave, we don't struggle, we don't cling so much, so fearfully, to what is bound to change anyway. A couple of years ago, in the middle of doing this massive water project for, that we and our neighbors are doing on Maui, uh, the cost of the project to get a reliable water supply to our properties was going above the half million dollar mark. So it was just getting really expensive. So I asked the deputy director for a meeting and uh, to ask him if there was any way that we could reduce the size of the project, or the scope of the project, or the cost of the project so that we could finish it up and... and uh, uh, get on with the rest of our life. So I had a, a list of 10 or 12 items that I thought we should consider. So I got an appointment with the deputy director and I went and he had a few of his, a couple of his engineers there and I handed them out an agenda and I said, okay, item number one, you know, you asked us to put in this 10,000 gallon water tank. Couldn't we reduce it to a thousand gallons? Gee, it would save us $100,000 or $150,000. And, you know, it'll, it'll serve the same purpose, blah, 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 blah. 
And so they talked about it and they looked in the manual and they looked in their rules and regulations and after a few minutes discussion they came back and said, no, we're not able to do that. Rule number XYZ says that we have to have a 10,000 gallon tank at this elevation and we can't do that. Okay, item number two. Couldn't we reduce the size of the pipe from eight inches to six inches? We're only serving a few houses and we really don't need eight inches worth. Six inches of pipe should be okay. And uh, what about that? It'll reduce our cost by $50,000. They had a discussion and after a few minutes they came back and said, no, we're not able to do that because X, Y, Z. Okay, well, how about, you know, the rebate that you're going to give us for some of our cost over the first five years of it being installed? How about if you just give it back to us now? <laughs> you know, and then we'll use that money to finish the project. And that would save us, geez, two or three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And they had a discussion, they said no. So after a few more of these, the deputy director looked at me and he said, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to tell you, life's unfair. Well, I did not like that. <laughs> I didn't like being told life's unfair. And I just sat there, kind of stunned. And in the first 10, 15 seconds after he said that, all these possible options rolled through my mind. I could swear, I could get angry, I could get resentful, I could get indignant. I was just, and they all were just kind of going by as options like, <laughs> Luckily, I'd had 30 years of practice and I didn't react and my mind landed on this is the way it is. And the corollary of that is it can be dealt with. End of top end of end of end of reaction. That's what clear seeing and accepting the truth of dukkha will do for you. We don't struggle with, this is the way it is. It's dukkha. Expect it. Because when, you, when, when, we're, when we're able to see and accept, this is the way it is. Dukkha isn't a surprise. It's not unexpected. And we can, we can deal with it. It can be dealt with. No matter how bad it gets. It can be dealt with. This is the wisdom of training our hearts, our mind, to see the truth, accept the truth, and understand that we can deal with it. This knowledge is invaluable in life. Every one of us can benefit from that kind of capacity, that kind of understanding. So this is the truth of dukkha, a characteristic of all experience that we have. There's a second characteristic that I want to speak about tonight, and it's called the anatta characteristic. This is a, a teaching of the Buddha that's really kind of often misunderstood. Uh, it's rather... Uh, counterintuitive. It's difficult to understand intellectually. It's elusive to confirm experientially. But it's important that you hear about it. Because in time, you will begin to understand 
your experience through the lens of the anatta characteristic. Conventionally speaking, it feels like there is someone inside here. Inside this body and mind, it feels like there's someone here. We could call it the one who observes, the one who does, the one who decides, the one who knows, the one who feels, the one who uh, controls my life. Doesn't it feel like there's somebody in there? It does. I mean, that, that's who we are. But actually, we believe, and we believe that this package of experience contains within it a thing, a me. And we also believe that about others, you. It looks like there are people out there. <laughs> In all fairness, there are people out there. <laughs> and there is someone here, too. But this sense of ourself that we have identified is a recognizable pattern of thoughts, feelings, beliefs, appearance that we're identified with. It is a useful fiction in our life to have a sense of ourself, to move through life, to relate to other appearances. But actually, it takes some heavy editing of our experience to sculpt the sense of self that we want to present to ourselves and others. We have to edit out a lot of what we could know about this mind and body in order to create a coherent, stable sense of self. We are our own publicist, if you will, <laughs> sculpting how we're seen in the world. And, but when our sense of ourself is not confirmed by others or external reality, we suffer. I like to think of myself as doing all I can to be healthy. I eat well, I get some exercise, and I watch my diet and things like that, and I go to the doctor and get my checkups. But when I get sick, well, there's something wrong with me. It's not the me that I want to be. Or when I think that, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty successful. You know, I, I get along in life, and you know, I have friends, and I have uh, relationships with students and other colleagues. And yet, there are times when People don't want to be my students, and others don't really see me as I see myself. And so there's some dissonance between how I see myself and how they see me. So my sense of self, fragile. Or I think that, you know, I'm a really, I'm, I'm a pretty happy guy, and yet my emotions get hijacked just like yours probably do. And I'm not always happy. So when my sense of self or your sense of self gets uh, not uh, affirmed, is not affirmed, we feel shaky, we feel unhappy, we feel threatened, we feel vulnerable. 
this wrong understanding of there being a me in here, it comes from the ability of the mind or the capacity of the mind to aggregate or to glue together all of our thoughts, our feelings, our intentions, our sensations, our memories, our plans, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our joys, our sorrows, our ambitions. Glue them all together into an apparent whole, which we call me. The task of practice is to pour the solvent of awareness on the glue of identification. (laughs) Really. And see this whole package called me in its pixelated form. Did you see how each of the momentary, ephemeral, evanescent that we've glued together into a sense of self. So we take the body. The the Buddha was really, really clear. He said, the body is like a clump of foam. A clump of foam. How substantial is a clump of foam? It's an appearance that's full of holes. There's really nothing to it. You pick it up, you squeeze it, you just... Nothing. Well... We have this sense, we have this feeling that I am my body. What happens to the body happens to me. And we get identified with its appearance, how it looks. You know, before I come to give a talk, I go go into the bathroom, look in the mirror, make sure my hair's the way I like it. (laughs) Don't you? (laughs) Well, I should say those of us who have hair. (laughs) Or... Not only the hair, but the rest of our body, we've got to make sure that the appearance of it is something we feel comfortable being identified with. Not only our appearance, it's how it functions. How's your body functioning? Your eyes working? Your ears working? Oh, gee, I had an awful experience last time I taught here. I have a partial hearing loss. And people are out there asking questions. And I'd say, pardon me, would you repeat that again? Pardon me. Sometimes three or four times. Finally, Joseph would say, they were asking if you would, and I would say, oh, okay. You know, I, I was identified with my hearing. We get identified with how our body works. Not only that, we get identified with our statistics. You know, how's your cholesterol level? How's your, how's your PSA, guys? You know, it's like, you know, and if it's a little high, a little low, a little off the scale, it's like we think there's something wrong with me. It's just a number. But that's how identified we are with our body. We aggregate, we put together all these experiences of the body, make it solid, and say, that's me. In practice, what do we actually see? We see that, you know, it's hardness, softness, pulsing, vibrating, tingling, throbbing, pleasant, unpleasant, heat and cold. Which of those is you? Doesn't make sense, does it? But when you pack, when you glue them all together with identification, I'm identified with how it appears, how it feels, how it how it smells, how it shape, its color, its weight, its size, its statistics. You glue it all together. Then there seems to be something solid there to get identified with. Practice is to take it apart. Just kind of look at it, just and see. 
that there really is nothing substantial there to be identified with. The characteristic of anatta is not obvious because the concept of a solid entity obscures it. This concept of body, self, obscures it when attention is not given to the separate, distinct phenomena. When the different phenomena are seen separately and the conceptual solid is broken up, then the characteristic of impersonality becomes obvious automatically. This is from the Visuddhimagga. It becomes obvious, but it's an understanding. We can look at this body in the mirror all day. We can continue to glue it all together, and we won't have that understanding. But it's from paying attention to the pixels of physical experience that we're able to let this understanding dawn in our mind that this is not really very solid. It's not very substantial. It's not really something to be relied on. What we do with the body, we do with the mind. We take and we aggregate all together. We synthesize, we glue together all of the many activities and functions of the mind. The narrator. The narrator that has been going in your head since your parents successfully told you you were you is still going on. Here I am, a yogi on retreat at Spirit Rock. Hey, my 13th retreat. Doing pretty good today. You know, I got up early, stayed up late last night. That's good. I like lunch. That was really good. My second sitting, boy, that wasn't so bad. That's, you know, yeah. And, and we're just on and on. And there's this story, this story going on in our head telling us who we are, isn't there? Don't you have, that, don't you have someone inside your head telling you what you've done today? How'd you, how are you doing? You, know, you just listen to the story. We get identified with that story. We, think it's, we really think it's me. It's just a story. So too with the feelings. We've experienced so much pleasant and so much unpleasant in our life, we think, I'm experiencing it. They come. They just come. Pleasant and unpleasant feelings. Feelings in the body, feelings in the mind. We can't control it. We have to deal with it. If it was our choice, we'd choose pleasant experience all the time. Wouldn't we? Of course. But we can't. And so, our sense of self, you know when you're, think about this, you come in, you have a sitting, you sit down, you have a whole sitting, not a flicker of pain. Don't you feel like you're really doing good? <laughs> or you come in and you have a sitting, you sit down, and within 30 seconds it's like, wow, you can feel it coming, that spear in the back. Oof. You know? And the whole sitting is just trying to keep, just trying to deal with that pain. Don't you feel like that's you? having a bad sitting, it's because we identify with pleasant and unpleasant feelings. Well, we see these, um, we have these perceptions. You know, you, you, perception is an automatic activity of mind. You know, you look at something and your mind kind of 
checks it out and says, yes, no, like, dislike, male, female, you know, blah, 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 approve, disapprove. It happens automatically. And yet we believe our judgments are ours. And so running through our mind is all these memories, some of which we like because they enhance our sense of self, some of which we try to keep away from because they dehance, no, they unhance our sense of self. They don't do anything for us. And yet, these perceptions, these memories, again, they're just a natural function of mind. But because we're identified with them, when we have an unpleasant memory, or a memory of something we did that was shameful, you know, we try to kind of get some distance from it. Or when we have a memory of something really pleasant, we really want to get identified with it. But these perceptions are just a natural function of mind. Well, we have these intentions. You know, who made the decision to come on this retreat? You did, right? Well, you know, the, the intention to do all kinds of things arises when you're sitting on that cushion. You know, I want to get up, I want to go get something to eat, I want to get a drink, I want to stop sitting, I want to, I want to write my book, I want to go paint a picture, I want to go outdoors, I want to go for a walk, I want to do this thing. Which one of those are you? Those intentions, they just arise willy-nilly. The ones that you grab a hold of and say, that's me, those are the ones you'll act on. And yet, we think we're in control. We're the ones making the decision. Habit makes our decision most of the time. Habit. What we've done before, we'll do again. Or if we're really practicing and, and have some momentum in our mind, wisdom makes the decision. But when we just kind of glue it all together, this narrator, these feelings, these memories, these plans, these intentions, these decisions, it feels like there's a me. And what we're most identified with becomes our personality. It's just a glued together amalgam of mental activity. And we begin to see this when we pay attention. We see that this whole story of my life is just made up of thoughts, feelings, judgments, memories, plans, intentions, decisions. And when you see them laid out as just a sequence of one thing after another, it begins to dawn on us that there's really no enduring thing there. It's just a package of stuff. It's like a tapestry. You know, you walk into a museum or you walk into the room of a museum and you see this tapestry on the far wall. None here. And it looks like, you know, oh, there's a picture of you know, two women sitting at a table with a bowl of fruit on the table. Okay? So that's what it looks like. You see two women sitting at a table talking over a bowl of fruit. And you walk up closer, and you get a little closer to where you're really close, and you can't really see the whole picture. All you see is the bowl of fruit, you know. And you get a little bit closer, and you realize there's no fruit there. You start picking at the threads, well, you don't really pick at the threads because the curator is going to come 
bother you. But if you could, you pick up the threads and you take out a little thread of a little piece of yellow wool, a little piece of green silk, a little piece of... And if you took it all apart, you'd have a big mess, but you just have a pile of thread. There'd be no picture, there's no women, there's no fruit, there's nothing except a pile of indistinguishable threads. Where did the picture go? Where did the woman go? Where did the fruit go? It was just a, an appearance due to conditions, glued together by not paying very close attention. So too with our life. This sense of self is just a tapestry woven out of mental and physical phenomena that we haven't looked at very carefully, glued together with, an identi- with identification and called me. Practice unglues the threads. Practice takes it apart so that you can see it's just these momentary experiences. And we can learn how to relate to them in a, a skillful way. We don't have to fear the scary things. We don't have to get uh, seduced by the pleasant things. But it takes learning how to relate to all of these pixels as the impersonal phenomena that they really are. So that we don't get bound or caught in a limited sense of self. Because, you know, when you put on the suit of your limited sense of self, you can only do certain things. You can't go beyond your, your means. You can't go beyond your limits. You can't imagine yourself doing what's outside of your sense of self. But your sense of self is just an arbitrary limit. The mind can experience anything. Believing the story that the narrator tells you creates a very small box to live in. Life has much more to offer. We can be, we can free, or practice will free us from that box, that limited sense of self. That's the direction that practice takes us. But it's an understanding that comes from just paying attention moment by moment to all that we see in the body and the mind. In our career, I guess, as sharing the Dharma, we get a lot of invitations to come here and the East Coast and other places. So we fly a lot. And I was urged early in my Dharma teaching career to sign up for the frequent flyer program (laughs) of whatever airplane you want to be, wherever you want to go. So I looked around and thought that United flew most everywhere I wanted to go, so I joined the frequent flyer program. And because I fly a lot, I get a lot of miles. And when you get a lot of miles, they like you. And so they give you little bennies, you know. You get upgrades and you get, you know, different things. So I've come to enjoy the benefits from being a frequent flyer. 
Well, a couple of years ago, I had to, I had a flight scheduled from San Francisco to Boston to go to a course. But something, I don't remember what happened, but somehow I had to get there a day earlier than what I had bought my ticket for. So I called up the airline and I said, you know, any chance I can fly standby on the red eye going to Boston tonight instead of at eight o'clock in the morning? They said, oh yeah, no problem. There's plenty of seats on that plane. It's half empty. This was when you could go to the gate as a standby. So I said, okay. So went down to the airport. I was living in Woodacre at the time. Went down to the airport at 10 o'clock at night to get the red eye. And I got there at the United counter and it was all pandemonium. It was chaos. I got to the, finally got to the counter. I said, what's going on? I want to fly standby to that flight to Boston. They said, oh, our last flight to Boston got canceled. They're all trying to get on this flight. There's no empty seats. So I said, oh, okay. Well, I want to fly standby. You know, if, if there's an empty seat on there, I'd like to fly standby. I'm a frequent flyer. <laughs> I'm a premier frequent flyer. I got a lot of miles. I'd really like to have that seat. And they said, well, it doesn't look like it's going to be a seat, but here's your thing. Go up to the gate and wait. We'll see. There's a couple of other people that want to fly standby also. So I got up to the gate, and I went to the gate, the, the, the counter there, and I said, I'd like to fly standby. I'm a frequent flyer. Here's my card. Look at those miles. <laughs> so they said, oh, yeah, we'll just sit over there with the other two. And when we get everybody on the plane, we'll see. So they got everybody on the plane, and they wanted to get off on time, so they brought the three of us who wanted to fly standby down the gangway to the door of the plane. And I said, <clears throat> I'm the frequent flyer. I'd like to... <laughs> If there's any seat on there, I'd like to get that seat. So they got everybody set down. They said, oh, there's one seat, one empty seat. And I said, oh. And they said, okay, okay. So they put me on. It was way out back, you know, between two great big guys. And seats, you know, and no overhead compartment. The back. It was just, it was tight fit. But you know what? I was on the plane. I was happy. I was going to get to Boston on time. So I'm sitting there kind of stowing my gear and just kind of getting ready to take off. And they found another seat somewhere on the plane, and they called the second person uh, flying standby to sit there, closed the door of the plane, they did the destination check. This plane is going to Boston. If you're not intending to go to Boston, please let the flight attendant know. Da -da -da. Sure enough, somebody in first class rang the bell and said, hey, wait a minute, I'm not going to Boston. <laughs> they opened the door, the person in first class got off, went out, and they said, hey, they called the third person who wanted to fly standby, and they said, Oh, come on, come on. There's a seat in first class. You can have it. <laughs> Up goes my hand to the bell. <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm the frequent flyer. I got, I'm the premier. Don't I get the first class seat if there's a... <laughs> they said, no, we're leaving on time. You've got a seat. You're flying standby. Be happy. <clears throat> I was not happy. So <laughs> first half hour of the flight, I was just fuming. It's like, why do I have to... I want that first-class seat. You know, I'm the freaking flyer. I'm the premier flyer. I should have that seat. They should treat me better. Don't they know that I'm better? You know, just, mm. I composed this long letter. <laughs> After a half hour, I said, you know, I got another five and a half hours of this. <laughs> I said, I don't think I'm. A, I don't think I want to do this for another five and a half hours. So I said, oh, what the heck? I'm on the plane. Let it go. I got to Boston on time and, 
and uh, I'm still a frequent flyer, and I still, you know, get all the miles, but what happened? What happened? Well, as long as I was identified with the narrator that said, I'm the frequent flyer, I deserve special privileges, and I wasn't getting them, I was unhappy. Once I saw the unhappiness that was resulting from that, I said, it's not worth it. Let go of that narration. The only thing that happens when we let go of the story in our head is we stop suffering. Now, what story have you been telling yourself today about your life that's causing you suffering? It's just a story in your head. It's a narration that you've reaffirmed over and over and over again that's causing you suffering. Anytime you can let go of it, you'll stop suffering. End of story. But it takes careful paying attention to see the stories in our head and how they're just stories that we've patched together, that we've identified with, that we've reaffirmed over and over and over again. Memories and plans and old hurts and, you know, expectations and fears and all kinds of things. We're just hung, hanging on to them by repeating them and identifying with them over and over and over. That's not you. If you choose to let go. That's what this practice will do for you. It'll show you the stories in your head that are causing you the suffering. I mean, we suffer when we practice. We see these stories, but we can't let go until it gets so painful we finally say, what the heck? Let go. It's such a relief. But we have to see the story. We have to see what we're hanging on to. All the fears, all the ambitions, all the hurt, all the judgment. It's just arising. And in every moment we have a choice to either see it for the impersonal, adventitious arising in the mind and let it go, or to claim it as me, mine, and who I am. Just by paying attention. All of this is revealed. We see it. We see what we're identified with in the body, in the mind, in the past, in the future, in our feelings. And we are gradually learning how to relate to it in a way of, with less suffering. How to understand it that it's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. Yes, it has to be experienced. But it's this insightful understanding that it is not me, not mine, not who I am that frees us from suffering. It's the understanding. And that's what we gain from just paying attention, moment by moment to all that arises in our experience. This understanding is invaluable. 
It's liberating. No one can do it for you but yourself. Or, I should say, you're not self. <laughs> Awareness. It just happens. Recognize it. I have long been tricked, cheated, and defrauded by this mind, the Buddha said. For when clinging, I have been clinging just to the body, feelings, intentions, thoughts. And with clinging as a condition, this whole mass of suffering has come into being. And he goes on to say, thus should you consider this mind and body as not me, not mine, not who I am. This talk was given by Steve Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 26, 1997. It is an Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.